Well, good morning and welcome, everybody. If it is your first time, an extra special welcome. Uh, my name is Austin Chapman. I'm one of the pastors around here at Glendale. Um, and I'm really excited to be here this morning because even though I've been here a little bit, I've been around for a little bit of time, I've spoken a few times, I have never spoken in this room right here in front of the camera with the entire tech and worship team. Um, it kind of feels like I was in the minor leagues. I'm being brought up to the big leagues. Um, but it, it's such an honor. And this morning, we're going to be talking about love. And I really wish we could be together right now because I know I would see some eye rolls. Like, yes, Austin, it's church, it's a sermon, we're talking about the Bible. Love is probably going to be part of it. And yes, that's true. But don't blame me, blame John. Because <laughs> we've been going through First John, and in this entire book, which is not a very big book, he says love about 48 times. And of those 48 times, 25 of them are in chapter 4, which is where we are going to camp out this morning is 1 John chapter 4. We're not going to go there yet, but if you would like to get out Bibles, if you would like, it will be in 1 John chapter 4. And as I was reading this text this week, as I was contemplating just this idea of love, it's fun to think about because love is simultaneously very simple and also very complicated. It's easy to define, it's easy to find, it also has no definition, and it's impossible to find. It is everything and it's nothing, it is so many different things. It's kind of like art. Art is known for being this thing that has no definition, but you know it when you see it. And some art seems objective and it's beautiful, and some is a little bit more complicated. Um, Robert Frost is a very popular poet who has a very famous poem called The Road Not Taken. And I would love to just read that really quickly just to show you the beauty of this poem. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood. And looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and warded wear. Though as for the passing there, had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden back. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled, and that has made all the difference." Now, it seems to me that there is somewhat of an objective truth to the beauty of that poem. You can see yourself in it. You can try and put yourself in it. You can decide what it's about. That, that, I have no problem with that poem. That poem is great. I am now going to read you another quick poem. That it's, not a, it's, too, it's way too long to put on the teleprompter, so bear with me. It's by a Puerto Rican poet named William Carlos Williams. Coolest name ever. In 1923, he wrote this poem titled The Red Wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow, glazed with rainwater, beside the white chickens. That's it. That's, that's the entire poem. That, that is also considered art. That is considered beautiful. And I am sure there are people who know art, who can evaluate art, who are looking at me, rolling their eyes again, saying, you just don't get it. And the truth is, I don't get it. I don't understand why that's art. It's it's complicated, I guess. We don't understand it. And so we can argue about what's art and what's not. And I think in that complication, love can be a little bit similar. There's a popular story of a husband and a wife leaving dinner and they're driving home 
And as they're driving, the wife says she has a really big headache. And so the husband tries to get home as fast as possible to help his wife. Along the way, they find out that one of their tires is a little bit flat. But they only have a mile to go, so they keep driving. They get home. He takes care of the flat tire, and he goes inside. And his wife is upset with him, and he's not sure why, so he asks her. And she says, I cannot believe you didn't love me by stopping to fix the flat tire right away. You wanted to get home. You were selfish. And he says, oh, no, no. I wanted to love you by getting home fast as possible to help your headache. I was actually trying to love you. But she didn't see it that way at all. And so kind of like art where I think it's art, some people don't. Jackson Pollock, don't understand. Andy Warhol, no idea why soup is cool. But kind of like love, love is a little complicated in that we can kind of see it and we kind of can't. And I thought about love and I thought about the ways we use it and the forms. I thought of all the ways in which we see love in our world. And this is not a substantial list, it's just a list that I came up with. But love could be a word. I love you. You're doing great. I'm proud of you. Love can be an action. Bring my wife flowers. Bring donuts to the office. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> love can be um, physical. It can be a hug. It can be a kiss on the cheek. It can be a high five. Love can be mental. I have nieces and a nephew. I look at them and I just think to myself, you're doing great. I love you. And I can think those things. I don't even have to say them. I can just mentally process love. Love can be easy. Telling my wife I love her is really easy. That's, that's the simplest thing. Love can be really tough. Confronting a friend who has an addiction is tough. But it's still love. Love can even be an omission of something. You could choose to not do something and it's still love. You could choose to not raise your voice in a conversation. You could choose to not do that certain hand gesture if someone cuts you off in traffic. By choosing to not do things, you're even doing love. And love can be a form of trust. The level and the degree to which you trust somebody can be a direct indication of how much you love them and how much you feel loved by them. And the reason I bring all this up is because as we go through 1 John today, I think John wants to tell us what the most important form or use of love is. And that is love is the eliminator of fear. Love eliminates fear. In other words, love is the instiller of confidence and of assurance. So if you have your Bible, now is a good time. We'll also have it up on the screen. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 18 through 21 to start, and then we're probably going to bounce around maybe a little bit here and there. Who knows? We'll have some fun. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now that's a text with a lot in it. And so this morning we're going to unpack that a little bit. And I see three big ideas in this text. The first one is the relationship between fear and love. The second is God's love for us. And the third is our love for other people. And so first, let's kind of unpack the idea of love and fear. Because whether we know it or not, they are completely interconnected. Oftentimes, where there's fear, there's an absence of love. And where there's love, there's an absence of fear. When I was in middle school, I took my very first Spanish class. And on the very first day, we were taught a phrase to say, hello, my name is, and then say your name. Every kid went by one by one. When it was my turn, 
I stood up and froze. Completely forgot the phrase. Had no idea. And it's like two words. And I froze. And I was terrified. I'm like, these kids are going to think I'm dumb. My teacher's not going to like me. It's, this, is, this is a terrible way to start a class. My teacher got up from her chair. She walked towards me. She gave me a big smile. And she's like, it's okay. We got this. And she repeated the lines to me. And I repeated them back. And then she got the whole class to cheer for me. And I sat down. And she did that for kids constantly throughout class to the point where we were no longer afraid to stand up and to speak. Her love, her caring for us, actually took away our fear of speaking in that class. And this idea is everywhere. Now, to those of you who don't know my wife, Megan, she is the single coolest, greatest person on planet Earth, and I will hear nothing different. (laughs) Now, she, I'll give you a little window into kind of the person that she is. We had been dating for about two weeks, and upon dating, we were hanging out with some friends, and a friend asked, Megan, what's your ideal date? Like, what's that, just, what's that ideal date that nothing beats it? And in my head, I'm thinking he's going to say, you know, maybe a hike, flowers, dinner, something cliche. My wife is anything but cliche. She gives it some, shot and she, some thought, and she goes, ideal date, cave kayaking. What? <laughs> Excuse me, cave kayaking? Yeah, cave kayaking. Aren't those events separate already enough? Why do you have to combine them? Like, what is that? She's like, oh, you know, you get in your kayak and you go into a, maybe a tiny cave and you get to explore the cave. It's dark and you get to canoe around it and explore. And if you want, you can hop out and rock climb around the, around the cave and you can swim in the cave water. Excuse me, the cave water? Yeah, the cave water. It's not for me. <laughs> that is not for me. But that was the first thing that popped into her head. She just, that's who she is. I have a picture here really quickly of my wife. This is our honeymoon in Thailand. She is 40, 50, maybe 60 feet in the air. She's rock climbing. And I try to rock climb with her. I'm awful at it. But when I get to the top, do you know what my first thought is when I get to the top? Get me down. (laughs) Got it. I did my task. I'm done. She gets there and she goes, eh, guess I'll take a selfie. That's just who she is. And I have another picture because I just love this picture and I love bragging about her. This is her bachelorette party. She's wearing her veil and she's rock climbing again. She... (laughs) This is just who she is. This is, and the reason why I bring this up is because my wife is fearless. And fear, fearlessness in her might be innate. She might have been born with it. She might have always had it. Her parents might have raised her to be that certain type of way. But there's a constant pattern in her life that I think has led her to be fearless. She often tells me times, one story in particular, where she's in Joshua Tree with some friends and her brother, her brother Jake, and they're scrambling around some rocks or doing some hiking, they're doing some climbing, and they come across a big gap. And with that big gap, it's just big enough to where you, if you jump it, you might not make it, and you could fall and you could get seriously injured. But it's also not too big to where you have to obviously go around or hike underneath it. You could, you could jump it. And as Megan's sitting there, she's a little nervous. She just looks in, her brother has just jumped it. <laughs> and she's a little scared, she's nervous, she's not sure what to do. And then her brother just looks at her and goes, Megs, it's okay, come on. And instantly, she's like, oh, yeah, I can do that. And she goes and she hops it. And now it's easy to look at that and just say, oh, cool, like, yeah, Jake, her brother's a good motivator. Or, wow, she just needed a little coaxing. But I genuinely believe that at the core of that is love. Her brother would never want to put her, put her in harm's way. He would never want her to get seriously injured. He would never take a calculated risk unless he knew it was basically zero. And Megan trusts and knows that her brother loves her. And so when he says, it's fine, she says, great, it's fine, and I'll be okay. When he says, it's not fine, she goes, great, it's probably not fine. Well, maybe I'll do something different. 
And that pattern has been throughout our marriage. As we've gotten to know each other, she tells me all these times when there's something that's going on and her brother, just by telling her she'll be okay, she feels fine. His love is actually casting out the fear and anxiety in her of the event. And now I think this relationship is similar to ours with God. Now, believe it or not, Jake is not God. (laughs) There are some differences. One of those big differences is that God is sovereign. And what we mean when we say sovereign is we say God is in control of everything always. God is the guy. He is in control always. Because with people, even if we trust them, even if we love them, they can still make mistakes. And when people make mistakes, you're, you, it's not that you don't trust them, but you kind of question their motives a little bit. Like if, if my mom made a mistake and it, it harmed me, I, I still probably love her the same, but I may not necessarily trust her the next time. But with God being sovereign, what that means is that he never makes a mistake. Ever. God never makes a mistake. He can't. He's God. He loves us too much. He's in too much control. He doesn't make mistakes. And so if we have a source of someone who can't make mistakes, we can always be assured of the outcome that he promises. Because at the end of the day, fear can often be defined as the unknown of an outcome. I'm not sure if I can pay my rent this month. I'm not sure if my kids are going to grow up to love Jesus. I'm not sure if I can keep my job. I'm not sure if I put myself out there how I'm going to be received. We have tons of fears because we don't know what's going to happen. Or we know the outcome and it's awful. (laughs) I am absolutely out of my mind petrified of flying. Absolutely petrified. No idea why. One day I was on a plane and I just clicked that I was terrified. And I've been scared ever since. On our trip, to, our trip to Thailand for our honeymoon, I was white-knuckling it, didn't sleep a wink. I don't think I blinked for like 18 straight hours, just stuck. It's because I have this thought in my head that at any moment this plane could go down. That's how I feel. I just feel like at every bump, every little thing, this plane could go down. But if I could look into the future with complete assurance, with complete confidence, and know that that plane is going to land safely, I guarantee you I would not be as nervous on that flight. I guarantee you. I don't know if you guys are weird like me where you watch sports games that are recorded. Like, even though you already know the outcome, like you record it, you watch it, and you watch it again. I'm kind of weird like that. But I know the outcome of the game. And so when I watch it that second or third time, I'm not actually nervous when the other team gets ahead. Like, at all. Like, who cares? I know what's going to happen. I know we're going to win. I know in the end. There might be stuff in the middle I don't fully know. Or maybe your friend just tells you, oh, you know, the Lakers are going to win today. And then you go and watch the game for the first time, and you just know they're going to win. Who cares about really what happens in the middle? I think that same idea is what John is telling us in our text this morning, that we actually know the outcome. We actually know what's going to happen, and we should have assurance on that. And because we know the outcome, because it's based in God's love and in his promises. And so, um, we kind of talked a little bit about, um, have I even read the text yet? I did read it? I just completely forgot. We've read the text. We did awesome. Guys, this is awesome. I'm not used to preaching in front of a camera. So we have talked now about the first idea, which is kind of this connection between love and fear. And now we're going to go into more God's love for us. Because John here says something kind of generic, like, you know, perfect love casts out fear. There's no fear in love. But I think John actually has an idea of what that fear is. I think he actually has an idea in mind. And so if we go back to the text, um, if you have your Bible with you, we see that 18... Starting with verse 18 again, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Right here. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
fear has to do with punishment. Now, what does John here mean by punishment? Any generic punishment? Does he mean getting grounded? Does he mean you know, getting fired? What kind of punishment? I believe that he has one idea for punishment in mind, one specific thing he really wants us to understand, and then I also think there are more general ideas that are applicable to our lives. But that specific idea, if you have your Bibles, because we don't have it on the teleprompter, we're in 18 through 21, but if you go one verse up to verse 17, here's what John says. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. I think this punishment he's talking about is the day of judgment. This day he's talking about is, is that final enemy, death. And beyond that, it's potentially God's righteous judgment, which could lead to hell. It could lead to not heaven. It could lead, lead to an eternity away from him. I think fear, this fear of this punishment, is fear that we are going to die and go to hell. I think that's what John is, bat- is battling with here. Because the truth is, is that I've been following God for a long time, and I still get afraid of hell. And I think that what he wants us to see here is that because of God's love, we don't need to fear hell. Because it says the perfect love cast it out. And what is that perfect love? Previously in chapter 4, John tells us that the perfect love was him sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. We are perfectly loved. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die so that we would know how loved we are, save us from our sins, so we could have confidence on judgment day, on our death, on his second coming, whichever may come first. Paul says in Philippians, to live as Christ, to die as gain. He knew this. He knew that dying wasn't the final enemy. In fact, dying becomes the final victory. So I think John wants to tell us that a true understanding of how much God loves you should lead to an assurance in death. And I think part of that is also a slight metric. If you think about hell and you think about death and you get really scared and you get petrified, it, that's normal. That's, that's normal and we're people. But I do think John is telling us there's a way to understand God's love the way he intended to give it where we don't need to worry or fear about that. The martyrs in scripture, they didn't fear death. And it's because they knew how much God loved them. And now, I think there also are some more general applications because John is going to go on to talk about loving your brother. And before we get there, I want to give you guys a quick scenario. You tell me if this ever has related to you or if you feel any sense of personal with this. You're having a nice day. It's a normal day. Everything's good. Everything's fine. It's a regular day. You get a phone call from a friend, a family member, whoever, and they need a favor. Maybe that favor is helping them move. Maybe that favor is um, helping them change a tire. Maybe they just need help with something. Uh, My brother would always get called for favors to fix people's computers, and he hated it. (laughs) But what are your feelings when you get that favor? Because sometimes, how many of you have ever had this feeling? I really don't want to help them move, but if I don't, they're going to think I'm lazy. They're going to think I'm selfish. They're going to think I don't care. I have felt that lots of times. So now I have two options. I can either probably lie to them and say, oh, no, I'm busy. Or I can say, yeah, I I can help you move. But really my motivation is not because I want to help them move necessarily, but it's because I'm afraid of what they think. I'm being motivated by fear to do a loving act. And I'm not going to say that that act isn't loving or that it's not great. What I am going to say is the source of that act isn't as good as it could be. We are being driven and motivated by fear more than we could ever know. How often do we care too much what people think? 
And we'll take it a step further. How much do we incorrectly care what God thinks? Now, I'm going to be very careful here. There is a healthy way to fear God 100%. Proverbs says that the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. We should fear God in the way that he is so amazing, so awe, so awe-inspiring, full of so much reverence that we look at him and we go, he is so powerful. Man, God, I fear your magnificence. But I do think there's also an unhealthy way to fear God. How many of us think, you know, oh, if I don't do that thing, that person will think I'm selfish. How many of us have ever thought, I should go help out at the homeless shelter or else God will be mad at me? I need to go do this because God's going to be mad at me. If I don't, God expects me to do this. If I don't do this good deed, then God is going to be mad at me. I have a buddy who struggles with pornography, and he believes that if he ever watches porn again, God will take away his idea of marriage. God will not allow him to get married. That God will take away his girlfriend with him. He'll cause them to break up. He thinks that his actions will make God mad. And so he's now motivated to not watch porn, which is, I think, a good thing, <laughs> But he's, not, he's doing that because he's afraid of God. And I think there's part of that that's an unhealthy fear. And as much as we all want to say in our heads, in our thoughts, God does not evaluate our souls on a, metri- on a merit system. That God does not say, you go to heaven or you go to hell because you were good and you were bad. Because you did more good deeds than bad deeds. We want to say that we truly believe Ephesians 2.8 when Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. We want to say we believe that. But how many of us have still subconsciously thought, I need to do that thing because it proves that I'm going to heaven. I need to do that thing because if I didn't, God might send me to hell. We are motivated by fear. We are scared to make mistakes. We are scared that God is going to smite us. We are looking at God as a boot about to step on us. We go and do good things because it escapes his boot. But that's not what this text is saying. There is no fear in love. We are loved, we love because he first loved us. We are able to love people because he first loved us. God wants us to show us that we don't need to be afraid of him necessarily as far as eternal damnation, as far as eternal judgment, because we have his love. Read John 3.16 again, probably the most famous verse, at least in America. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, so that all should have eternal life and not perish. It, the, that equation is God loves us, so he showed his perfect love through Jesus so that we would know we're not dying going to hell. That's the entire rhythm of that, is that we get to be in heaven and not be afraid of hell because he sent his son. So I think the way that God intended us to feel his perfect love is to, if we truly recognize how loved we are by him sending his son, We are no longer afraid of eternal judgment. We're no longer afraid that God's going to be mad at us for doing things. So instead of you loving somebody because you're afraid of God, you love somebody because you love God. You love your neighbor because you love God. You love people because you are loved by God. The source of your loving act is now love. It's God. Now again, I'm going to say it. There's a healthy fear of God. I truly believe that. But God is not an angry kid with a magnifying glass and we're not the ants. He's not trying to burn us. He's not waiting for us to make mistakes. He wants us to know how loved we are. Because to say that we love because he first loved us, that's, that's, that's a sequence. We can only love people because he first loved us. Now, I don't want us to ever, 
I'm going I'm to really quickly read again verse 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother and sister. So I think it's easy to read that. It is so easy to read that and say, okay, I want to prove that I love God. So I'm just going to love people more. I'm just going to keep loving people. I'm going to keep loving people. I'm going to keep loving people. And I think that's backwards. I think if you don't feel like loving people, you should go back and realize how loved you are by God first. Because it's easy to read this and say, well, to prove I abide in God, to prove I'm in his love, I'm going to just go out and keep doing stuff. I think you'll be burned out. I think the step should be, if you don't feel, I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't times you don't feel like loving God. I'm saying when you feel like you're in a state of not really loving your brother or your sister, I think we need to go back and just sit with God and just rest in him, rest in his presence. We can never be reminded too many times that he loves us, that he cares about us, that he wants us to be safe. Because to have this assurance actually allows us to draw from a source of love as opposed to a source of fear. Because perfect love casts out fear, the love of God. And now we can actually use that love we've been given to then give it which is why I think these final two verses are also somewhat of a metric to test our faith a little bit. If you don't feel like loving people, if you are really kind of hating people, this tells you you might not have a great relationship with God, at least it's not as good as you thought. And so texts like this, I hope, aren't supposed to discourage us, but hope to encourage us and help us to assess our faith and say, I I don't know if I'm loving people that well. Okay, I'm going to go back to God. I'm going to go back to God, the source, the everything. Because at the end of today, if I could leave you with one thing, it would be, Plain and simple. God loves you. The God of angel armies is on your side. He doesn't need you. He wants you. So much so that he sent his son to die to save you from your sins so that you would have assurance. And that assurance, that safety allows you to go out in love, not to go out in fear, and to preach boldly. So I'd say if you've you've taken anything today, just talk to God. Just hang out with God. And if you happen to feel God's love, if you feel it kind of bubbling up, feel it effervescing a little bit, then share it. Text your sister, call a friend, write a letter. Love your fellow man. There's so much disunity in the world right now, so much in America. Let's just love our fellow man. Let's love our people because God first loved you. He first loved us.